Well, good morning. My name is Eric Bobbitt, and I serve on the pastoral staff here with Zionsville Fellowship, and it is so good to be together this morning. And as we continue our series on the fruit of the Spirit, I'd like to encourage the children here who are in this room and those who are at home watching on live stream to get a piece of paper and something to draw with so you can depict in words or in some kind of a drawing uh, what you're hearing today. And um, there should be on the screen here two pictures from last week. Last week's topic of joy, one of the fruit of the Spirit. This is uh, from the Mansell family. And so I encourage uh, parents, if you would like this coming week, if uh, your child creates something uh, that you'd like to send, you can email it to me, uh, and we love to see those things. Uh, Let's pray together. No love is higher, no love is wider, no love is deeper, no love is truer. Lord, you have called us to feast on your great love, which you have brought to us from beyond time. Thank you for revealing from eternity who you are and the love that you have for us. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would minister and teach us this morning from your word that we would understand you better, that we would be more like you, that we would reflect and show you to this world, and that we would um, find in our innermost being uh, your peace that surpasses all understanding. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we have been learning that the fruit of the Spirit is a composite picture of the beauty of Jesus' character. And if you had the privilege, 2,000 years ago, of being with Jesus of Nazareth as he traveled and lived and taught, if you could have been at his side and then you were asked to describe him, these are the kinds of words that you would use, that he is loving and joyful and peaceful, he's patient, good and kind, he's faithful, gentle and self-controlled. So our aim is that those who know us would use these same words that are the fruit of the Spirit to describe us. And not that these things are brought about in our lives by our own effort. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It is from Him. And without His transforming work, it won't be produced. And of course, without our participation, we won't be able to bring forth a full harvest. So today, today we're going to study peace. The last couple of weeks we studied love and joy and now peace as a fruit of the Spirit. So here at the beginning, what comes to your mind when you hear the word peace? Semantic range is a term that refers to the breadth of meaning of a word. And the term peace has an extremely wide semantic range. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, is a significant theme. God's design, the order He desires and expects, is aimed at human flourishing. Shalom is a word which is rich in meaning. It's related to wholeness, freedom from fear and want, for all to be at peace with God and with each other and with creation. 
And although this is a most desired state, humankind rebelled against its creator in strife, in self-will, in fragmentation, in conflict, now corrupt the good creation. In the New Testament, we find at least three major expressions of peace. Peace with God, peace within, and peace with others. And a natural progression exists between these three. It begins with peace with God. And last Sunday, Drew taught from Romans 5, which declares that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, having been justified by faith. Being forgiven, made righteous, and fully accepted provides the ground for peace for us to be able to have that kind of peace within. So all that we'll be talking about today is grounded in what we learned last week, that we have peace with God through Christ. And then this internal personal peace makes possible for peace with others. So it makes sense. Peace with, peace with God, peace within, peace with others. Let's read from Philippians 4 this morning, which will be our text, so we can better understand and grow in peace. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. The Apostle Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The promise here is for the God of peace to guard you with the peace of God. So let's start by defining specifically what we mean by peace. One author describes it this way. Biblical peace is a confidence and rest in the wisdom and control of God. A confidence and rest in the wisdom and control of God rather than in your own. It replaces anxiety and worry. Now, all of us are familiar with anxiety. It's that sense of uncertainty, tension, or uneasiness about a future event or concern. It's an uncomfortable feeling of dread and being out of control. Now, we need to acknowledge that every person's worry or emotional burden is significant to them. If someone is worried about something, and maybe you've gotten this before, it does no good to give the response, oh, don't worry about it. That's not a big deal. You think you've got worries. And children, this includes you. Whatever you're concerned about in your life, this passage shows that God cares about you and cares about your burden. We're all tempted to worry. And what a great gift it would be to learn as a child 
to be able to address those worries and understand how to release them to God's care. So, how about for each one of us today, this morning, what is your greatest worry? What is the one or two anxieties that you find are burdening you? Well, Philippians 4 speaks directly to you and to me and to that concern. Now, over the course of our lives, there's no end to the variety of individual threats to our peace. But right now, we are in an unprecedented time for most of us. So what a timely topic this is for today. As our nation and our lives and most of the world struggles to find equilibrium and to right itself. Now, I have never lived in a time in which the rhythms and the relational structure of everyone's life has been so radically altered. It's like an earthquake, it seems at times, as if the very ground beneath us is moving. So perhaps you've been affected these past months by anxiety, experienced a loss of focus, of creativity, traction, productivity, and emotional stability, been robbed of the ability to live fully in the present moment. And anxiety is a thief, steals confidence, hope, and trust, and joy. We become, or we can become, listless and fearful, isolated, vacant, negative, preoccupied, or irritable. And so like you, I'm in the midst of, of this journey, and I need Philippians 4 and what it has to offer. So let's turn our attention there. In this section of the book with Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul continues his discussion that reaches all the way back to the first chapter and the 27th verse, in which he calls the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And in order to do that, As we read this morning, he provides us with five instructions in these few verses. To rejoice, forbear, relieve anxiety through through prayer, to think properly, and then to practice what you have been taught and what you have seen. So rejoice and forbear, relieve anxiety through prayer, think properly, and practice what has been taught to you. Paul begins in verse 4 with a very clear command doubly stated. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Last week, Drew taught on rejoicing, and we have a couple of reminders here about joy in Philippians 4. First of all, in what do we locate our joy? Rejoice in the Lord, he says, not in circumstances or in desired outcomes. And then also, when and how long do we rejoice? always. There's no statute of limitations on joy. Paul next exhorts, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, it's difficult to find in English a single term to translate the Greek word here, but words such as gentle, yielding, and forbearing get us there. It's a kindness where the normal response would be retaliation. This kind of quality about ourselves Paul says, should be known to others. So what do you think is evident about your character to the people 
that know you? What's, what's easily known about you? When they walk by your tree, what fruit do they see hanging? We want it to be the fruit of the Spirit, of the Spirit, that radiant character of Jesus. Paul uses this very word that we have here, reasonableness or gentleness or forbearance, in describing Jesus in 2 Corinthians 10. Paul then adds an encouragement for us to be this way. He says, the Lord is at hand. Here he's probably referring to Christ's return because at the end of chapter 3, right before this, he talks about Christ's return in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. He also mentions his return as a motivation for our obedience. And then in verse 6, we get to the subject at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. So we hear in Paul an echo of Jesus' words in Matthew 6. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Remembering the context of the Philippians' life situation can help us appreciate this command because we read in Acts 16 earlier that Paul and Silas were in Philippi for the very first time sharing the gospel, and they were attacked by a crowd. Then they were sentenced to be beaten by rods, and they were thrown into prison with their feet in stocks. So the Philippians knew that. Some of them might have been there and witnessed those very things happening. They lived under the threat and the reality of that kind of persecution. So in the face of violence and imprisonment, the apostle reminds the Philippians to be anxious about nothing. And so they, like each one of us, know that worry is absolutely unproductive. As Jesus said, which of you... Being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life. But how do we do that? It's probably not new news to most of us to divert away from worry. When apprehension rises and when tension grows and you get that internal sense, what do we do? Well, we must do something other than focus our feelings and ourself on the emotions of anxiety. It is counterproductive to remain in the emotional domain trying to stop feeling worried. To just simply say, I've got to stop feeling worried. I've got to stop feeling this. How do I stop feeling this? But where do we put our attention? But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. So we actually turn from the feeling, the emotion, the anxiety, to conversation, to relationship with the Almighty. The Apostle Peter agrees. In 1 Peter 5, he said, Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. And David, in Psalm 55, encourages us, Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. We're told to utilize prayer and supplication. The Greek word translated prayer refers to one's attitude of mind as being worshipful. The word for supplication denotes prayer as an expression of need, an act of solicitation. Therefore, I come before God with an attitude of reverence and awe and trust, 
aware of his ultimate worth, and then I humbly submit my requests. Paul uses the word anything and everything, which means I talk with the Lord about anything and everything. If it matters to you, it matters to him because it matters to you. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Paul adds another decisive element, gratitude. When we're fearful and bothered, agonizing over an uncertain situation, the Lord wants us to grasp gratitude. And this lifts our horizon. We gain perspective as we recount how he's come through in the past. We rehearse from his word how he has cared for his people. We remember what God has done for us in Christ. And then we recall from our own life what God has done. We recognize that current worries do not outnumber the blessings and the kindnesses that God has showered upon us. Each week at our staff meeting, one of the things that we do is we read the text for the upcoming sermon, and then we share uh, just there on the spot uh, meaning and implications for that text. And this is one of the highlights of me for my week as I'm able to gain insights uh, from John and Drew and Taylor uh, and Deb and Kay and Bob. And this past week, as we read this and talked about it together, it was shared that one of our staff families applies this text by using these three memorable words to pray, thank, and think. Pray, thank, and think. And verse 6 outlines the first two of these. Pray in everything with thanksgiving. Now, I come from a family that uh, I would say is conscientious and sensitive and serious and prone to anxiety. So I am wired for worry. And left to my own devices, I too often live the moments and the responsibilities of my life actually three times. So beforehand, uh, I'm wrapped up in the concerns about what's coming. When I'm experiencing it, I've got uncertainty in the midst of what's going on. And then afterwards, I have self-scrutiny. So it's just a tangled web of worry that I can live in. Well, encouraged by this promise of peace that's in Philippians 4 here, when one is confronted with anxiety, I decided to put this into practice this week. So Thursday morning, um, before I did anything else, I just sat down and got a blank piece of paper, and I decided to write down everything that is worrying me, the burdens that I have, the things that just shackle me, that feel like a ball and a chain that are attached to me. Um, And so I wrote down uh, 30 worries. And actually, here they are, just on a piece of paper, just wrote down these 30 uh, situations and items uh, and people that I care about. I started with my family, my wife Jan. We have four married kids, uh, four grandkids, one on the way. Uh, We have an 18-year-old who will be leaving for college in a month. So that right there, that's enough to fill my bucket. (laughs) So, but I I kept writing, right? So a 93-year-old mother-in-law who lives with us, uh, my parents uh, who are are, uh, both in their 90s, and then the list goes on. Personal finances, household projects and order that needs to be done, my siblings, extended family, neighbors, And then wrote down specific people, Sam Seward and her family, Doug and Amy Byram, Haley Henry, 
uh, Katie and Courtney, two women in our small group that will uh, be having children uh, here within the next few days. This sermon, the reopening concerns for our church, growth and health for our church body, the economy, racial unrest, the political situation, COVID, and then many other names and situations. And then I prayed about each one of those and then thanked the Lord for something specific about that situation or those people. And I didn't do this. I I didn't do this like, I know what I'll do. I'll do this, and then I can talk about it in my sermon. That'd be great. I did it because I needed it, because I was convicted in reading this passage uh, of just the desperate need I have to do to lay out my life before myself and before God and to let Him take that and, and to seek for and to receive the peace of God. And in doing this, I found there's a real difference between rehearsing one's worries and casting your burdens on the Lord. Because if all I would have done then, or if any of us would have do today, is simply to list off our anxieties to the Lord, uh, we're not really in any better shape. And actually, I would have been in a worse shape than I was because I would just end up feeling overwhelmed by pinpointing and piling up all the anxieties in my life. Casting one's anxieties involves talking with the Lord about what's at issue with enough specifics to feel the angst and the uncertainty. And then verbally and emotionally, and it's hard to put this into words, I mean the process where you then relinquish it, you release it, you hand it over to Him. Now, the biblical word for this is cast. So it's like fishing, right? Like a fishing pole. And you cast it, and then when you pull it back, the line has nothing on it. So it's releasing that, and you bring back nothing because He has that. Now, this obviously takes an investment in some time and some intentionality, and it takes emotion and it takes thought. And this encounter with God is an exchange because what I have, He then takes. And this spiritual exercise isn't normally done globally like what I did. It just took the time to take everything in my life. You can do it with one thing at a time throughout the day, and we repeat it with all these situations. And it yields the result that's described in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul's words again resonate with the teachings of Jesus. In John 16, we read that Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And earlier in John 14, Jesus said, Peace I leave you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, give I to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What is so unique about the peace that Jesus gives? He's claiming that here, right? He's giving something that we cannot find anywhere else. Well, it's because he has overcome the world. Paul in Ephesians 1.22 tells us, God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything on behalf of the church. 
Jesus has power over the universe, and he exercises it on our behalf and our good. Jesus is strong and kind, all-powerful and good. We are secure in that relationship. We are safe and we are accepted. And troubles we will have, he promises that, that to us. They are real and they're worrisome, but they are not ultimate. I read this sentence that makes so much sense to me. The solution to the problem of a burden too heavy to bear is to transfer it to the shoulders of the one who is able to bear it. If you saw a small child in an airport that was tripping and falling because they were carrying an oversized backpack, what would be your response? What solution would come to your mind? Well, have someone who could handle it to carry that burden. We are that child. The solution to the problem of a burden too heavy to bear is to transfer it to the shoulders of the one who's able to bear it. Verse 7 continues the thought, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. God's peace transcends our merely human way of perceiving the world. His infinite wisdom, His sovereign plan, and His sometimes mysterious purposes are higher and beyond our ways. Peace comes because our prayers become expressions of trust, and we don't need to have it all figured out in order to trust Him. An ultimate measure of our peace is if it comes from an interior trust of God rather than our circumstances. And so now we come to a promise, the second half of verse 7. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This word guard was often used to refer to the actions of a military garrison within a city. The Old Testament language is expressed this way in Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress my God in whom I trust. You are dwelling in a garrison, in a fortress that shelters your mind, that can shelter your mind from anxiety and guard your heart, which is the center of your emotions and your motives and of your will. Guard your heart from troubling realities that threaten to lay siege and overtake it. We are defended. We are covered by this peace of God, as we pray and as we thank. And then verse 8 provides the instruction for us about thinking. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Being told to think about these particular things Here means to meditate, to maul over, to give continual attention to. We are to be occupied with what is morally and spiritually excellent. Now, this list of virtues that Paul gives us here are not distinctly Christian. These words were used uh, by Greek and Roman thinkers during Paul's time. And many people who would have read this, that were not even Christians, would have embraced these words and these ideas. Through the repeated use of the word adjective, the adjective whatever, 
He seems to place special emphasis on the breadth of these qualities. The Philippians are to look for these qualities, for whatever is true, noble, just, pure, lovely, excellent, around them, anywhere and everywhere, and to ponder these things in which these qualities are exemplified. This is not only a way of life for all Christians at all times, but thinking on these things is fruitful in our clash with anxiety. Pray, thank, think. Pray, and thank, and think. Paul concludes this section in verse 9 by reminding the Philippians not only to center their minds on excellent things, but also to put into practice what they have learned from his teaching and his example. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So emulating worthy Christian leaders has a positive effect on us experiencing the peace of God. Following the pattern of what, we have, what they have learned and received and heard and saw in Paul will place the Philippians in the design and in the order of the way of life that God intends. And peace will be one of the results of this kind of obedience. So appropriate questions for us would be, am I intentionally placing myself next to mature, worthy Christians so I can practice the things that I learn and receive and see in them? And if you've been a follower of Christ for some time, then ask yourself, am I making myself intentionally available to younger Christians in order to influence them in their walk? Philippians 4, 4 through 9, 9 although it's not a wooden formula, does portray and provide for us a pathway to personal peace. And a God of peace will overshadow us with his care, it tells us. And in this, our responsibility is to lead obedient lives. Verses 6 to 7 call us to exercise faith through prayer and gratitude. Verses 8 and 9 draw us to a holy walk in what we think and in what we practice. But uh, we do not always accept the Lord's invitation into this partnership with Him. Sometimes we opt for alternatives. And I think often we find ourselves tempted to pursue counterfeit peace, manufacturing our own methods to escape anxiety. And when we do this kind of thing outside of God's design, our attempts will ultimately fail. And this is especially evident when pressures or stress swell and our methods collapse under their weight. In our final few minutes here, I want to review some common attempts at counterfeit peace. And I think uh, you might find yourself in some of these, particularly these last few months, the things that we've been experiencing. And when I think change and uncertainty and stress gets to this level for this length of time, that's when our counterfeit methodologies tend to collapse. What we're searching for here is an honest appraisal for you to figure out how have you been handling uh, the pressures in your life. Is there evidence of a divine relationship and cooperation on your part, or do you find that you're actually in the basement printing counterfeit bills? So, ask yourself if you are attempting to manufacture peace through any one of these six counterfeits. The first one is distractions. Escape means dodging the pain and the confusion of reality by entering the numbing pleasure 
and the forgetfulness of a distraction. In times of unrest and metastasizing anxiety, we crave what will consume our time and energy and leave no room for serious reflection. The first substantial exploration of distractedness was by Blaise Pascal in the 17th century, a French thinker, and he wrote, If our condition were truly happy, we should not need to divert ourselves from it. Being unable to cure death, wretchedness, and ignorance, men have decided, in order to be happy, not to think about such things. I have often said that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his own room. Healthy diversions and rich relational time enhance the ability to face uncertainty with courage and with trust. Escapist distractions make cowards of us all. Secondly, relying on circumstances. Am I fashioning my brand of personal peace on how, on how well my life is unfolding? I personally am tempted to have a ledger mentality, which in my mind, I just create two ledgers on this side as an accounting. Everything is positive, hopeful, good, going great. I've got another column over here, which is the bothersome, troublesome, and the things that I'm worried about. And so it's real simple. I, I, I know if I'm, I'm peaceful today or if I'm worried by the simple formula that I, that I see before me. And then I can feel justified in all kinds of states of anxiety because my ledger proves to me that today, that this week, that this month, I deserve to be worried and a bit out of control and in a fuss because look, look what the ledger is saying. Number three, adding anger to anxiety. This is a counterfeit attempt to get peace, adding anger to anxiety, to fix blame or to seek justice or to divert oneself from how uncomfortable anxiety is, some of us move to undo anger. Worry seems impotent, while anger feels powerful and gives us a sense of control. So adding anger to anxiety only compounds the emotional turmoil and misdirects us from the original need, which is to express, express trust in the Lord in measured and patient ways. A fourth attempt to manufacture peace in a situation is by simply de denying that it matters. Sometimes the simplest route is to stop caring. Rather than engage in the hard work of investing yourself in a seemingly insolvable situation, it's easier to just check out. One can do this philosophically, claiming there's no ultimate purpose or meaning to life or anything, so it doesn't really matter. Or you can just choose to withdraw yourself into a cocoon of safe futility. A fifth counterfeit is depending on vague, unfounded optimism. Reassurances can be made that have no basis in reality. Perhaps you've heard these or even said these yourself. Glib pronouncements that everything will be okay will not release us from the snare of anxiety. Simply, simply proclaiming faith is not the key. Faith must have an object, and the object must be trustworthy. Believing that a Harley-Davidson can fly will not get you to the moon. 
So what we say in a funeral home, at the hospital bedside, and in a global pandemic must be grounded in something substantial and absolute and eternally true. The last counterfeit is confronting anxiety with self-sufficient pride. This is my journey. I am on this road alone. We say, I don't need anyone, or I don't deserve help. Either way, I'm not reaching out. So we all have considerable capacities to carry our own weight. But invariably, there's going to be a load that you cannot bear. There's going to be a burden that you are not meant to carry. Well, I don't know if you found yourself in any of those six counterfeits. I I certainly do from time to time. And rather than concoctive creative methods to ignore and divert, divert God's attention, He wants us to pray and to thank and to think and obey the pattern that has been laid down for us. And we need this. I need this. Your families and your household will benefit from it. Your friends would be encouraged for you to have that kind of peace. And the world would be a better place as they could experience Christians who were at peace with themselves. So, In conclusion, may we embrace the wisdom and the beauty and the inherent trust of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength and a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the waters tremble at its swelling. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Lord, we praise you that these things are all true, and we admit to you that we do lean into them, we grab for them, we search to find this truth and then to experience it. And Lord, I confess to you that it is a challenge for me, and I rely on myself. I turn away from the very path that could bring me peace. So we pray together that, Lord, that we will turn to you, we'll have conversation, we will cast our burdens to you and pull back, and the line will have nothing on it because we have released it to you. And, Lord, we thank you for how you're teaching us and how you care for us and how you bring goodness and wisdom to us through everything that we're experiencing. And, Lord, we want to think about those things that are noble and commendable and excellent in this world that you have made. Thank you for all that you have shown to us and taught us. Thank you for the leaders that you've given to us that we seek to emulate. And Lord Jesus, most of all, we thank you for you and your gift of salvation, that we have peace with your Father, that we have peace with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which gives us the hope of peace within. 
It's in your name that we pray. Amen.